Thank you. Hey, if you're new to Sunridge, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and again, I, Jed mentioned this, but we have almost 200 ladies up in the mountains. They'll probably be heading home pretty soon. And without in, most of them here, I realize this is a heavier masculine attendance today for some reason. Uh, I'm proud of you guys, especially you guys that brought your kids to church without mom to help. You know, I don't know if they had cake for breakfast or what you did, but uh, good for you for showing up. Um, but I do want to say how proud I am of our women's ministry. And, you know, we have been given such a legacy over the years by great leadership in our women's ministry, great teams that have been formed, super talented, bright, grounded, scripturally uh, women that have led our women to grow more deeper in their faith and also to grow outward in connecting with one another. And uh, I'm just so proud of Pam and the team that she has built. Uh, so uh, if you see her, thank her because she's doing an amazing job here leading the women of our church. I'm super thankful for her. Okay? You guys all right? All right. You, can, you can clap for women's ministry. <laughs> So, um, in 1996, uh, That Thing You Do came out. It was a movie. Um, and in this movie, it's, it's about a garage band from small town USA who hits it big. They get a hit. And uh, a very young Tom Hanks is in this movie. But basically, the film is about how success affects these small town relationships. And um, in one particular scene... Uh, the girlfriend of the lead singer is played by Liv Tyler. She comes to the realization that success has separated her from uh, Jimmy, her boyfriend, and all the loyalty and love that she had given him over the years was not reciprocated. And I want to play that clip right now. Good Lord, Faye, you look gorgeous. Now, next up for you kids, you get to make... Another record. Can I say something? Hey, the fair Faye wishes to address us all, so is it... Jimmy. From now on, you stay away from me. I have wasted thousands and thousands of kisses on you. Kisses that I thought were special because of your, your lips and your smile and all your color in life. I used to think that was the real you when you smiled. But now I know that you don't mean any of it. You just save it for all your songs. Shame on me for kissing you with my eyes closed so tight. in Pittsburgh. So when I was planning on showing that movie, I didn't realize how many women would be gone. So <laughs> I apologize for that, guys. I know. But here's the thing. We're, we're wrapping up a series that we've called Devoted. And this series has been all about God's astonishing devotion to us and how we can live more devotedly to him. 
And we've said that devotion is the fusion of heart and commitment. And if that's true, then it's really awful when you realize that you've given your devotion to something that wasn't worthwhile. When you've given heart and soul to someone or something, and in retrospect, it turns out that you wasted that devotion. Maybe you've done it in a relationship. Uh, on the other end of that spectrum, maybe you did it in some business idea. You, you spent years and years trying to launch a new business out of your garage or something, and it just it didn't work out. And maybe, maybe you did it, maybe you've wasted time on a career, and you worked for an organization for years and years and years. You gave them the best years of your life, and then one day you weren't producing or they didn't see the value in you, and they clipped you. For some of us, it could just be a purchase. We save and save and scrimp and work hard, and then we make this purchase. And it's like, in the end, we kind of say, well, that wasn't worth it. And in some way, I got to, like, guy it up here. We wasted thousands of kisses on something. Now, I know with God, nothing is wasted, but did you know that the Apostle Paul talked about how we can waste our devotion. And that's, that's our last message in this series. I want to talk about how we can waste our devotion. And we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, but <clears throat> as I've mentioned in the past, the, the, Paul wrote these letters that are in your New Testament, either the churches that he had founded and he was writing back to them about issues that they were facing, or in some cases, as in um, Timothy and Titus, those letters are written to an individual, and young Timothy is a pastor. He's leading people in ministry, and so this is what Paul writes to him in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. And some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they, they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. You know, it really strikes me that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this young Christian leader, this pastor. And the first thing he addresses is that there are some things that are not worthy of your devotion. The fact that Paul has to write that is indicative that there were people wasting their devotion. And the fact that he puts it first in his letter puts it at such a high level that I think from the very start we have to, we have to realize that what we devote ourselves to is so important. Now, what's interesting about what Paul talks about here is devotion wasters, they're not the things that are obviously a waste. 
right? I, I, you know, it's, he's not talking about sin. He's not talking about destructive behaviors or addictions. He's not talking about wasting our talent. There's no end to the ways that we can waste our devotion. But here, Paul is talking about religious things. Put it that in quotes, things that things that might seem worthy of our devotion, but looking back on our lives, they were not worthy of it. And so we have to, like, if this was an issue then, it must certainly be an issue today that well-intentioned Christian people can give themselves to something that is a total waste of their devotion. It might have been something that you took a stand on. It might have been something that you separated friendships over. It's like you were well-intentioned and you gave your heart and your soul to this thing, and it was a waste. So the main thought, I think, that comes out of this short passage that we're going to look at today is this, and this is in your notes. Don't waste your devotion. Don't waste your devotion. Again, if devotion is the fusion of of heart and commitment, you know, you only have so much of that. We only have so much passion and time to invest our lives in something. So it needs to be worthy of the level of priority we give it in our lives. Now, I want to tell you, like, you're going to be surprised by some of the things we talk about today. You might even get a little tweaked. I'm not doing that on purpose. But I just ask you to keep an open mind and avoid reacting to what we talk about today. Keep an open mind and an open heart and avoid applying it to someone else, especially that person sitting next to you or the person that used to sit next to you, which might be more appropriate, right? So don't waste your devotion. First of all, don't waste your devotion on beliefs and values and teaching that is unsupported by Scripture and mainstream Christianity. Don't waste your life on teachings and values and beliefs that are not supported by the Scripture and mainstream Christianity. Verse 3, Paul says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Now, you'll notice that I didn't use the same words that Paul did. He calls this this value system that's uh, spurious He calls it false doctrine. But the reason why I didn't use those words is because you know what false doctrine is, right? It's the other guy's beliefs. So let's let's bring it in a little more personal, a little more organic for us and get it down to where the rubber meets the road. False doctrine is that which is unsupported by Scripture and the mainstream of Christian faith. We're going to talk about that. You know, I think the word doctrine kind of gets a bad name today. I've heard some teachers say, well, you know, we don't teach doctrine here. We just preach Jesus. You know, the problem with that, I I get the sentiment of it, but the problem with that is who is the Jesus we believe in? If Paul wrote, you know, I want to know him with all of my being, who is the Jesus that I know? It's doctrine that informs that. Our theology is kind of the foundation of how we understand who Jesus is. And our capacity to follow teachings, beliefs, and values that are not supported by Scripture or outside the bounds of mainstream Christianity is high. 
it is a big, big problem. It always has been. Jesus warned, Jesus' day, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. Paul says, how, how can we know true doctrine unless we've invested ourselves in understanding the Scripture? In his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, he writes this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Paul says it's really important for us to have a grasp of what the Bible says and why it says it. And there is work involved in that. We have to cut it straight, as he says, and invest ourselves in understanding. You know, and this is one of the things I think as a pastor, it's really hard to wrestle with this because, you know, like I remember uh, in my early days of ministry, you know, there are basically misconceptions that were being propagated by a lot of TV evangelists or like some of the popular uh, cults or whatever that were, uh, you know, happening in the early 80s, which is my generation back then. Um, um, it's like dark history for some of you, but there were actually people living back then in the 80s and the 70s. Um, but, you know, so we had to wrestle with these misconceptions. But, you know, what's happening today is, according to polls in America, kind of like just a basic understanding of the Bible, like the, the, having read it, that's on a downward spiral. And so people are, are more and more ignorant about the Bible, which makes it really difficult to sit in a room of three to 500 people and talk about the Bible when you have people who probably have a PhD in what you're talking about, and people have no idea what we're talking about. I've always said a church Sunday morning service is like one-room schoolhouse on steroids. It's like, how do, you, how do you communicate to everybody when people need to grow, but people that are new to church have so little knowledge about the Bible? If that's you, and if, in, in, if I'm talking to you and you're like, man, I've tried to read the Bible, I just, I, I don't get it. First of all, stop reading Leviticus. <laughs> and I just want to tell you, you have a smartphone, get version. It's a free app. There are many, many versions of the Bible in there, but there are thousands of reading plans that are really simple. And in that version app, you can also get what's called the Daily Bread. You can just search it, and it'll give you a daily reading with a story and kind of an, an explanation. It's a great way to get started, but either way, we need to build year after year a fundamental understanding of what the Bible teaches and what it doesn't teach us. And this topic is so important to Paul of getting it right that when he says, I command certain men not to teach false doctrines, I want to point out that Paul is referencing individuals. He, in fact, we're gonna, he calls out names later. And I want you to notice that he's not saying, you know, hey, I think you need to have a dialogue with this person, or you need to sit down and debate this issue. He is saying, I'm telling you to prohibit their capacity to teach. That's pretty serious, wouldn't you say? That's huge. In fact, um, just a little later in this book, in 1 Timothy 
He says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. He's saying, stand like a guard and be aware and alert and protect people that are under your spiritual care from false teaching. You know, one of the things I love about a church like Sunridge is we're non-denominational. That means we don't, we don't have an overlay of a denomination. There are many benefits to being part of a denomination, but what comes out of that, because we don't have like a statement of faith that comes from the denomination, we, we have made our own over the years. And, and it means that we're going to end up being more diverse and generally speaking, than a denominational church. And I love that diversity. I love that we don't all have to fit in a certain box. But you know, at the same time, there's like, there's boundaries. And sometimes teaching is not just out of bounds, it's far out of bounds. And so we reserve the right here at Sunridge to protect that at times. And to filter curriculum and materials, we're, we're very broad-minded. But, you know, this is a responsibility that's been given the church leadership. And the two reliable guardrails that I think that we have in kind of keeping us all on the right track is the Scripture and mainstream Christianity. And I, I, I put those two together because, you know, we can make the Bible say anything we want it to say. And indeed, through history, people have done that. So there's a second guardrail that says, what, what is the testimony of historic Christianity? And that gives us solid guidelines. Um, you know, in our statement of faith, uh, we talk about how important the Scripture is to us. We teach the Bible on Sunday morning. Um, I constantly tell people, you know, I challenge you, if I'm making a point without a scripture to substantiate it, you should call me out on that. Um, so we believe the Bible is authoritative, it's inspired by God, and we find our truths and our values in the scripture. But our statement of faith also says that we stand with most evangelical churches. Now, I know it's gotten kind of foggy about what evangelical means today. We're all over the page, so we might have to come up with a new word. But what we're saying in that is that there's safety in the historic and traditional pass-down that comes from the church, from people who have looked at these things for centuries and centuries. And so when we, when we think we've discovered something new or there's something new on the, on the church horizon, you know, some church has created a new thing. And if, you know, we need to be careful there. God does new things all the time. We're moving along in our culture, all of that, but we, we still need to be careful about our guardrails. Scripture, and is it within the bounds of orthodoxy? What, what does the church believe on this? Because when someone comes up with a new thing, or like some secret knowledge that no one else ever had, you know, that happens. Let's just recognize, like, th you know, thank God we're not the church of the 1950s or, you know, the year 300, because um, we wouldn't have drums. You know, I love drums. But 
You know, when you, when you think that you've come up with a new thing in a context where people have been looking at it for century after century, you're either a genius or a fool. And so it needs to be evaluated through that filter. And I want to tell you, honestly, one of the, one of the primary tools that I believe the evil one and false teachers use to get us off track is this phrase, God told me. God told me. I heard from God on this. Now, we're going to talk about that in a second, so don't let me lose you. But I want to point out that every weirdo and every cult has always started with that. God told me. I have secret knowledge that no one else has ever had. How in the world did Jim Jones ever get people of the people's, uh, peoples of the people's temple, say that three times quickly, how did he ever get them to follow him? How did David Koresh get people to go to Waco, Texas, before Magnolia? <laughs> Why would you go to Waco? Well, there's Baylor there, so props to that. But. And follow him. How in the world did Warren Jeffs ever capture people from the Mormon church in his incestuous polygamy? One way. God told me. I have special knowledge. I recently heard of a popular author who wrote a book who said, my book is not my idea. God dictated every word to me. Now, you know, the thing that makes me uncomfortable about that, and it should you, is that that means it's above debate. It's above scrutiny of the scripture and of the orthodox beliefs of the church. And usually these things start small, but they move in a direction off the path that we want to be on. So I say that when, I mean, I, I want to say that God has given me a word before. I feel like I've never heard the, the like an audible voice from God, but I felt a strong urging from God. Um, and sometimes I like, I have an idea that I'm like, you know, I think that's a good idea, but I'm not sure. And I vet it among other people. It's like we all, I think that God moves that way. But the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. And we must all, it, it still has to answer to the scrutiny of the scripture and of the church. Otherwise, I think it's, I think it's going to lead to wasting your devotion on values and beliefs that are not supported in scripture. So, God has given us scripture, he's given us the historic beliefs of the church, and he's given us a brain. And all of them are at our disposal, and they should be used often. So don't waste your devotion on beliefs that aren't substantiated in the scripture and are outside the bounds of the general beliefs of the church. Having said how important doctrine is, let's put even that in perspective with this. Don't waste your devotion on knowledge that fails to release God's love through you. Don't waste your devotion on knowledge that fails to release God's love through you. See, doctrine is extremely important, but it's not the goal. It's the means to the goal. And knowing doctrine or having an orthodox creed 
is not the end. It's the means. Our doctrine informs us of who Jesus Christ is. It is not a substitute for him. And talking about doctrine is not the, or arguing about doctrine is not the goal either. It is not the ultimate end. In fact, Paul says here in verse 4 that faith that is solely academic or creedal and certainly argumentative is insufficient. Note, verse 4, that they devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. This, and the, the Judaizers of this time, the, the believers who came out of the tr- traditional uh, Jewish religion, they would note their genealogy as a uh, point of self-righteousness that it, it demonstrated their exclusive claim to belong to God and God's acceptance of them. And so they spent a lot of time on this. These things promote controversies rather than God's work, Paul writes. And some have wandered away from the true path to meaningless talk. Meaningless talk. See, if my doctrine or my beliefs, if, if I spin my wheels on things that don't matter, if I spend my time embroiled in controversy, always calling out someone that doesn't believe just like I do, and if all I do is talk, then I'm wasting my devotion. I found a substitute. Let me, how many of you love meetings? Yeah, me neither. So in the last years of my uh, time in the fire department, I was an executive. And, you know, like when you're an executive, sometimes your days are just like just meetings. We used to call it death by meeting. Maybe you've had a position like that or you have one now where there's days where it's like, what did I do? I went to meetings. And it can just seem like a total waste of time. And one time I was sitting in a meeting or waiting for a meeting with one of my colleagues and he leaned over to me and said, hey, Britt, if, someone to, if your doctor told you you had a terminal illness and you were going to die in 30 days, would you stay in this meeting? And I said, heck no. And he said, I would, because it would seem like six months. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. You know those meetings where it's just talk and talk and talk, and there's no point, there's no action point. That's a waste of our devotion. And you know what I'm afraid of in the Christian community? We've become like a talk culture. I mean, I I love books, I love podcasts, I love being in small group and chatting it up and dialogue and sometimes even debating these things, but is that the end game? Are we devoted to talking? As Paul says, meaningless talk. In his second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 14, he says, keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words of no value and only ruins those who listen. Have you ever been in that circular kind of toxic conversation where it's like, are we really arguing about that? It's quarreling. And it adds no value. Similarly, he writes to Titus. In Titus 3.9, he says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Here's something we say often here. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. 
And you know what the main thing is? It's Jesus. It's the gospel. It doesn't mean that other things don't matter. But keeping the main thing the main thing puts everything else in perspective for us. And it will keep you on the right path as you learn. I want you to notice in these same verses in 1 Timothy 1, verse 4, what Paul says our learning should produce. He says these promote controversies rather than God's work. My, my beliefs and values should, should result in God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is what? Everyone say it. Love. What kind of love? From a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. My beliefs and values and teachings should be generating something in us, in me. As James said, don't just be a hearer of the word. Do what it says. Our vision statement here is to deepen faith, bring hope, and live love. And the point there is that as our faith grows deeper, it should be producing hope. It should generate, catalyze in us a desire to bring hope to our community, to our relationships, to our marriages, to our families around the world. And it should generate love. And if it's not doing that, then we're probably wasting our devotion. If my faith deepening is not bringing about hope and love, it's likely it's bringing some form of self-improvement only, self-affirmation, self-righteousness. It's generating something that's self-focused rather than Jesus-focused and others-focused. In Jesus' prayer in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.10, he prayed this, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's kind of the way I think of how the gospel affects us. When the kingdom of God comes into my heart, and by the way, the kingdom of God isn't like the, the eternal, you know, off in the future. It's what God is doing now. And, and Jesus says, my prayer is that God would bring heaven to earth. And he does that through his people, people who are following him wholeheartedly. Our beliefs and our values bring the kingdom of heaven to our relationships, to our place of work, to the way we do conflict, to the way we decide it brings something beautiful to the world. If you're new to Christianity and you're exploring faith and you say, like, well, you know, what is Christianity? Christianity is a person. It's, it's not just, I pray, this, I pray this magic prayer and now my sins are forgiven. Check that box. Now I'll go live like I want. And it's certainly not clean up your act and become a good person. Christianity is following Jesus Christ. 
And certainly when, when, when we receive Christ, we wholeheartedly are forgiven by God. And it doesn't matter how bad you were before. God loves every person. He'll forgive anybody. You can start fresh and new with God. But when, when that happens, when Christ indwells us, it changes us. And He is formed in us in a way that translates to we make Him known in our world. We bring heaven to earth. And if your spiritual development or your pursuits spiritually don't create Christ in you and Him known, then you're really wasting your devotion. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to spend any time in my life sitting around just talking about God and arguing and being right I want to be right. I want to debate the right things. I want to know the truth. But if that truth doesn't generate in me a spirit of Christ, then it is wasted devotion. Our beliefs need to be accurate, but those beliefs should lead to action, to bringing hope and living love. It should bring the kingdom here. So don't waste your devotion on knowledge that doesn't create Christ-likeness. Lastly, don't waste your devotion by following personalities instead of Jesus. Don't waste your devotion by following personalities instead of Jesus. Paul says of these individuals in verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. I love how Paul doesn't pull any punches. Have you ever looked at somebody and said, you don't know what you're talking about? Paul did that. And you know, he took it a step further. He's not afraid to call them out. When he said that certain men, I prohibit these men to teach their false doctrine. Just later in this chapter, in his letter in 1 Timothy 1.20, he names some people. He says, among them, the people I'm talking about, Hymenaeus and Alexander, I've handed them over to Satan. They're that bad. He names their name. Can you imagine, like, that's your name? It's in Scripture forever, and you're the person like messing the whole matter up. Ouch. Paul does the same thing in Philippians 4.2 to a couple of ladies who can't seem to get along, Yodia and Syntyche. He names them. He says, you guys need to get along. John calls out Diatrophes in his third letter. He says, Diatrophes loves to be first. Paul He's not afraid to name names, and he calls out the prideful and the self-focused. Here's, here's the problem with following a personality over Jesus. First of all, there are people that want power, and they want prestige, and they want their celebrity. And second of all, we're far too willing to give it to them. Because there's something in us. We want a hero. We want, we want this person to, to be, we, we picture them bigger than life. You know, uh, Everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. And there's nobody above that. If we follow a personality, we're, we're being suckered into something that God never intended for us to be a part of. So they want the celebrity. We're willing to give it. And you know what? They're very willing to accept it because they want power. 
And we need to take pause when we, when we follow Christian celebrity over and above things about them that are not grounded in Scripture or within the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. Over the years, I, I've certainly been guilty of following people that uh, they're teaching. You know, it took me a while to just figure out, you know, they're off base. I made all kinds of excuses for them. I've been guilty in the past of like loving, you know, like the pugnacious person is like, likes to like just shove it down your throat, you know. It's like, yeah, tell them what, it, tell them what it's like, you know. Um, we can overlook people's inappropriateness. There's certainly uh, people being followed today uh, in the Christian community that are living in inordinate, wealthy lifestyle. People are too willing to follow someone who's blatantly in sin and unwilling to repent of it. And the way we do is we just ignore. We ignore the facts that we see about them. We ignore uh, them because we like them. They, you know, they click with us. We like their jokes. We like their style. And, and then we just make excuses for them. And you know what? That's going to waste your devotion. Because ultimately, they're leading you to, to follow them and not Christ. And defending them quite often could put you at odds with following Jesus. They leverage our human pride. our own prideful ways and tendencies. We, we want to believe in conspiracy. Some of us are conspiracy theorists. It's like there's some secret knowledge that no one else has, and this person has it, so I follow them. Even though what they said isn't grounded in Scripture. Um, we follow people because uh, of our deep emotional hurts, and maybe there's something that we connect with them. And yet, beyond that emotional connection, are they, are they teaching the truth? Some of us, we connect on a rebellious level, if we're just honest about it. So we like that they, they push the envelope, and, and we kind of like that. Some people, we love the intellectual pride that they have, and like some people just kind of talk above everyone else. And those of us that are attracted to that, we, we buy into that. And we get pulled in by our own self-righteousness because we can build, you know, they, they have a way. Teaching says it's us four and no more. And we're like, we have the super secret knowledge that no one else has. And so we're the best. They leverage our insecurities. You know, this isn't just spiritual leaders. It's relationships in general. How many, how many of us in our dating life have not just overlooked so many things that are just so blatant right in front of us. And later in that relationship, we're like, what was I thinking? Sometimes we think we're going to change them. Or, but we just keep overlooking. We do it in organizations and relationships, and we do it far beyond Christian leaders. We attach ourselves to people that are leaders without really evaluating their character and who Jesus is. Obviously, there's no perfect person. 
If, if perfection was the standard, I couldn't be a pastor. Some of you are like, yeah, I thought you were talking about yourself all this time. But I hope that you're not following me and my awesome personality. You see, our faith, the Scripture, and the testimony of the church, that's the, that's the underpinning of who we attach ourselves to. And that should be informing our loyalties. You know, as I mentioned in the beginning of this talk, that we don't want to waste our devotion. And you know, if, if you're not dead yet, God's not done with you yet. And, and you have only so much passion, only so much commitment or things that you can dedicate yourself to. Don't waste it. Don't waste it on, on beliefs and values that take you away from following Christ. And don't waste it on just creating a, a box that of beliefs that you, you believe here, but it doesn't translate into a faith that comes out of your life. And don't waste it in like overlooking the character of people and following, don't, don't waste it in following a person. That person that you follow or you're following alongside or serving alongside, it should be leading you toward Christ. Anything else, you will waste thousands of kisses on it. And you will waste your devotion. Let's pray.